Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 55th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Here we are in 1982. What a year. Back in the 80s, I think I was saying to you, I don't know, yesterday or something, that it's funny how the randomness has worked out because we're seven years in and we're doing our third year from the 80s. I, the 80s were calling to us. I don't know. But here we are in 1982. Not too dissimilar, I guess, from other years we've talked about since it's still the 80s. Yep. <laughs> Interestingly, unlike I think pretty much every year we've discussed other than this, we found mostly fun, interesting things for this year. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to run you through some of those. Some advancements in technology of 1982. The first computer virus was developed by 15-year-old Rich Skrenta. It was on a floppy disk that had to be inserted into the computer, so that's exciting. And also, the first CDs were developed and Sony launched the first CD player. Also in entertainment, a Late Night with David Letterman debuts. Which that's weird to think for, about. You might have heard of it, Thriller debuts. And then Epcot Center opens in Orlando to go along with Walt Disney World. This one is a real head scratcher for me. I was really struggling to wrap my mind around it. I think um, this was the piece of history we came across this year that we were the most shocked by. Yes. When would you, if you had to guess, say that ciabatta bread was invented, Kelsey? The 16th century. That would have been my guess. Yes. It was 1982. <laughs> I just... I didn't think we were out here inventing new types of bread 40 years ago. Is that possible? Which, you know what, should give us all hope that there are more delicious breads even in our future. That's true. There could be another ciabatta bread right around the corner. Something to look forward to in this hellscape that we call the world of 2022. So that's 1982. What a time to be alive. Let's go ahead and do our run through of the movies this year and the what they were nominated for, what they won. We're back to just five. So it's a much more manageable chunk for this year. Yes, our normal format. All right. So in alphabetical order, the first movie nominated in 1982 for the 55th Academy Awards was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which is a family film about a child who befriends an alien. It stars Henry Thomas, Drew Barrymore, Robert McNaughton, and Dee Wallace. It's directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won four. Best Original Score, Best Sound, Best Sound Effect Editing, and Best Visual Effects. Next, we have Gandhi, a biopic about Mohandas Gandhi and the liberation of India. It stars Ben Kingsley in his film debut, Rohini Hattangadi, Roshan Seth, and little Martin Sheen and Candace Bergen. It was directed by Richard Attenborough and written by John Briley, nominated for 11 Academy Awards, and it won eight. Best Picture, Best Director for Richard Attenborough, Best Actor for Ben Kingsley, Best Screenplay, written directly for the screen, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, and Best Film Editing. Okay, next we have Missing, a political thriller about the aftermath of what was definitely not... 
1973 Chilean coup. Don't accuse it of being about the 1973 Chilean coup. No. It stars Jack Lemmon, Sissy Spacek, and John Shea. It was directed by Costa Gavras, written by Costa Gavras, and Donald E. Stewart. It was nominated for four and won one Best Adapted Screenplay. Next is Tootsie, a comedy about an actor who pretends to be an actress to find work. Starring Dustin Hoffman, Jessica Lange, and Bill Murray. It was directed by Sidney Pollack and written by Larry Gelbert and Murray Shizgal. Nominated for 10 Academy Awards, it won one Best Supporting Actress for Jessica Lange. And finally, the last nominee is The Verdict, a legal drama about a washed-up alcoholic lawyer who attempts to redeem himself by winning a medical malpractice suit against the Catholic Church. It stars Paul Newman, Charlotte Rampling, and James Mason. It was directed by Sidney Lumet, written by David Mamet. And it was nominated for five, and it won zero. Womp womp. Womp womp. The highest grossing movies of the year, we will give you the top ten, are number one, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, two, Tootsie, three, An Officer and a Gentleman, four, Rocky three, five, Porky's, six, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, seven, 48 Hours, eight, Poltergeist, nine, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and ten, Annie. So we also like to talk about anything that's particularly notable in film this year. We have a couple of things of importance. The first is not only was E.T. the Extraterrestrial the highest grossing film from 1982, it was the highest grossing film of the 80s. So huge hit. Yeah, Steven Spielberg just keeps turning out those hits. He can't help himself. Also this year, Tron is the first feature film to extensively use computer animation ushering in the rise of CGI as we know it. Uh, We mentioned that 48 Hours was one of the highest grossing films of the year. That was Eddie Murphy's big screen debut. He was the first actor to be paid a million dollars for his debut role. So get it, Eddie Murphy. (laughs) That's right. In sadder news, during the production of Twilight Zone, the movie this year, Vic Morrow and two child actors were accidentally killed during a helicopter scene which led to huge reforms in filmmaking safety and child labor laws. And we still have horrible set accidents. So, you know. Yep. So we have listed the five. The winner this year is Gandhi. Mm -hmm. The general consensus at the time was that the two front runners were Gandhi and E.T. So I think people were not hugely shocked. The historical consensus, I think people probably still think Gandhi is a, you know, very well-respected biopic. (laughs) It's not one of those movies that people have turned on as time has gone by. It doesn't appear on your Oscars worst winners lists. Right. But are we mad about it, Maddie? Yeah, kinda. (laughs) Are you? I'll say yes as well. I mean, I'm not like furious, but I just, it's not what I would have picked. Sure. Before we talk about Gandhi, let's run through all the nominees and would we have been mad about them, starting with E.T. Would you have been mad about it? No. Yeah, me neither. Missing, would you have been mad about it? No. Me neither. Oh, okay. (laughs) Tootsie, would you have been mad about it? Yes. Same. And the verdict, would you have been mad about it? Yes. Yeah, we're in complete agreement today. Wow. This is wild. So first, before we get to our no, we wouldn't have been mad about it. Let's talk about the ones that we don't think should have won. So I think we'll save Gandhi because it is the winner. Yes. Let's talk about Tootsie. Let's talk about Tootsie. So Dustin Hoffman plays this actor who is struggling to get work because he's 
difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And so through a sequence of events with an actress friend of his comes across this role that's hiring at a daytime soap for a female character. He needs money because he wants to pay to produce his roommate's play that he's going to star in and they need to pay for it themselves because nobody else will produce it. So he decides kind of on the spur of the moment that he will dress as a woman and come in and get this role on the daytime soap as a female character. And then through hijinks and also serious romantic drama is kind of a fascinating film. He learns to be a feminist kind of is the is the arc of the movie. And he falls in love with his co-star played by Jessica Lange. And I have a lot of thoughts. It's an interesting one is Tootsie. It's not exactly what I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. What about you? So I thought I'd seen Tootsie before, but rewatching it, I was less confident (laughs) about that. I might have (laughs) just seen parts and pieces of it because I was like, I don't remember the arc of this film. It's interesting. I think we're going to talk about it too in relationship to 9 to 5, which of course we covered in the 1980 episode. You know, I think as a comedy, it's not... Super funny throughout. I thought the funniest scenes were the scenes with Sidney and their arguments about his role as an actor. Yeah, uh, Sidney Pollack <laughs> plays his agent. Yes. there. I love, I, I don't know if you're thinking of this, but that scene as it's all fallen apart at the end and he's talking to Sidney Pollack about how one woman thinks he's a lesbian and another woman thinks that he's gay. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, that scene was hilariously written and the two of them were great. I liked Bill Murray a lot in this movie, I will say. He's great and he's so understated. I've yeah. never seen a more understated Bill Murray. He just plays the best friend character who is a kind of frustrated writer, but he's a supportive friend. He has this seemingly like good relationship with his girlfriend and he's just like a normal dude. <laughs> he's trying to get his horrible play about a couple moving back to the, lo- <laughs> the Love Canal produced. But, you know, I think the the gender politics of this movie have not aged super well. That is definitely true, but also in a different way than I expected. Okay. Just knowing what it was, I anticipated the baseline of the humor being predicated on like how funny it is that a guy is dressed as a woman. Mm. And there's really not that much of it. Like as soon as he decides he's going to be a woman, that's not really the joke. There's all sorts of interesting stuff going on where him putting himself in a woman's shoes all of a sudden makes him like see women as people. Like his arc is that he is this misogynist who over the course of him being this woman character he sees how the woman that he likes is being treated by men and realizes that like that is exactly how he treats the women in his life i mean you're left with like he's a pretty shitty person (laughs) and so it's like feels not great that it takes him doing this to realize that women are people and should be treated as such yeah but i think there's also right the implication in the film that women could use a little bit more masculinity to to get ahead in the workplace and you know it's a yes. it's also a film about women in the workplace to an extent which is again right the 9 to 5 connection and i mentioned to you this before oh, yeah. i think it's interesting that 9 to 5 does not get nominated but this film does a film about women in the workplace that is centered on a man man yeah i think it's bullshit is what i think (laughs) if tootsie can be nominated nine to five damn well should have been nominated it's fucking great yeah and i don't have any weird mixed feelings about the gender politics of nine to five the way that i do about tootsie a thing that i did think was interesting about tootsie and i don't know was really intended is 
I feel like there's a like an inherent queerness to it that's very interesting because Jessica Lange's character is like very much falling in love with him as a woman. Mm-hmm. He's falling in love with Jessica Lange and she's bringing him into her family and she sort of thinks she's kind of setting him up with her dad, but that's not really what's happening. Like there's this montage scene when, you know, he as Dorothy is with her family and she is feeding him food off of her finger and stuff as Dorothy. It's like flirty. It's not like friendly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then when it gets to the point when he comes on to her as Dorothy and she says, I'm just not well adjusted enough for this or something like if she was less homophobic, she would be down to be in a relationship with Dorothy. And then at the end, they do that thing where it's like, well, it's all okay because I'm actually a man anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. I will say to your point too about the movie maybe not being as transphobic or homophobic as you thought it might be, in the scene Mm -hmm. where he reveals himself live on television to actually be a man, I did appreciate the reactions of, who's the actor who plays the the older guy on the the soap who's in love with Dorothy also. I don't know that guy's name. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that guy has tried to to sleep with Dorothy and he, his response is just, does Jeff know? Because he thinks Jeff is Dorothy's boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, so and then, I did love that. So yeah, yeah, there's a moment where there's this creepy older actor guy who kisses all the women that are his co-stars and he's yeah. coming on to Dorothy. And at one point in the movie, he shows up at her house and is like singing songs outside of her house. And so Dustin as Dorothy lets her in and then he like is sexually assaulting her Mm -hmm. in the apartment and then bill murray comes in luckily and the guy then thinks this is her boyfriend and then he's like oh i'm so sorry for overstepping since you have this boyfriend and so then yeah there's this great joke beat after the reveal happens that he's actually a man and that guy's only reaction is does jeff know i also will (laughs) say i appreciated during the scene that that was happening where after that guy left dustin hoffman just said flat out to jeff like rape is no laughing matter and you're like true yes hell yeah that is true. But also I like after he revealed himself, Dabney Coleman's reaction behind the scenes was, I knew there was a reason she didn't like me. <laughs> Fucking classic. Dabney Coleman's great. Yeah. I mean, it had its pluses. It had its minuses. I'm glad I've seen it because I feel like it's sort of a cultural touchstone. Mm-hmm. But nine to five, we're talking about movies about women in the workplace, like funny movies about women in the workplace. Nine to five is just so much more successful on every level. Yeah. So I guess the conclusion is... Nine to five truly should have been nominated. <laughs> yeah. At the time we were like, oh, you know, maybe it's a comedy. People don't always nominate comedies. But now that we're in a place where this is nominated, like nine to five did not get the respect it deserved. All right. You want to talk about the verdict? I would love to talk about the verdict. Okay. The verdict is about Paul Newman's character, who is a lawyer. He's had a fall from grace. He's an alcoholic. He can't find any cases. And his friend slash mentor brings him this case that should be a slam dunk. A woman went to a hospital run by the Catholic Church in Boston to give birth. They gave her the wrong anesthesia, and she is now essentially brain dead. And so her family wants probably a settlement to be able to pay for her long-term care so that they can go and get their lives back on track because they've been caring for her for four or five years straight. Paul Newman takes the case. It seems like the Catholic Church is going to settle for an amount they need, but he goes to visit the girl in the hospital and he has a, a change of heart. He was really impacted by this young woman 
And so he decides against the wishes of his clients. Well, without even consulting his clients. Right. To not take the settlement and to go to trial. And the remainder of the film is about him and his mentor trying to win the case against this, you know, big, well-staffed, well-paid law firm. And there's some intrigue with that. Meanwhile, he falls in love with a woman he meets at a bar, and their relationship is also ongoing through the movie. In the end, he wins the case, and it's a happy ending. And that is sort of the the plot of the verdict. Okay, uh, so there, all the pieces are here for this movie, right? It's Paul Newman. Love Paul Newman. He's never bad. It's Sidney Lumet directing, who we've already talked about and we love from like the, you know, network. We're Sidney Lumet fans. You got David Mamet, the writer of like- Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. Yeah. I actually haven't seen that. So this was my first introduction actually to David Mamet, but he's a name. We all know. He's a name. David Well-respected playwright yeah. and screenwright. It was okay. <laughs> I thought, I mean- There are little bits that I thought were interesting. Paul Newman's doing some interesting stuff. He has like panic attacks throughout that I thought were fascinating. There's at least an interesting turn because the woman that he falls in love with, it turns out, is actually a spy for the other side, which I was very happy to find out because I was just like... We have to get into this woman. (laughs) I have a lot to say about Charlotte Rampling. I I mean, the end is kind of like weirdly fairy tale sappy. I mean, based on what we saw, did you feel that he had won his case? Well, the reason he won the case is because they told them to throw out the evidence, but they didn't. They had heard the testimony and they couldn't throw it out because they heard it. And so that's why he won, even though on the merits, he probably should not have won the case. I was actually shocked that he won because he's he's a pretty bad lawyer throughout the movie. It's yeah, it's not him trying to save his reputation so that he can get more clients. He becomes convinced that this is the case that will save him as a person mm-hmm. and make him worthwhile again if he can just win this case for this woman. And it's like he's so far outside the bounds of what is a rational way to act that you're just like, why are you doing anything? He also steals someone's mail at one point. Yeah. It's bad. He does. He opens someone's mail. I So, yeah, a couple of things. I, I had sort of a similar issue with this movie as I think we did with Michael Clayton, where they're flipping back mm-hmm. and forth between the legal drama and then sort of his personal life. And I'm like, well, the character stuff is interrupting the momentum of the legal drama. And I'm not sure the character stuff is as gripping as the film thinks it is. And part of that is sort of wrapped up in Charlotte Rampling's character, who is the woman he falls in love with, who is so written like men write women in this kind of movie that yeah. I at first I couldn't tell if as a viewer we were supposed to think that their relationship made sense when it didn't. But also I thought early on if she had not had that dinner with his friend mentor, there was a good chance she was a figment of his imagination. <laughs> That would have made sense, too. So they meet at a bar and he happens to go up to her and say, like, hey, what are you what are you up to? And she's like, I'm looking for an apartment. And then a couple days later, he sees her again and they have a mediocre at best date. And then she comes home with him and they have a, I would say, not a sexy kiss. And then she immediately starts taking her clothes off. And then she's just in his house repeatedly for a while because now they're 
in love question mark and she's there to provide him with whatever type of specific emotional support he needs at any given moment in yes. the plot so like she's supportive when he needs her to be supportive but then she kicks his ass when he's ready to give up on the case and <laughs> you're just sort of like who is this woman she's like 20 years younger than him she's beautiful i get it he's paul newman but like come on and then she's just there with no actual character traits of her own. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what is the point of this fucking woman? And then, at, thankfully, I thought in the, in the moment, it turns out that she's a plant. The other side has been paying her to spy on him. Seemingly not even that much money. It was like $500 or something on the check. Right. Well, she's also hoping to restart her. She was a lawyer and she stopped yeah. working or something. She's hoping to restart her career with the other law firm. But I also, like, A, it, it did make her character make sense. So I was like, Okay, yeah. but it was such a soapy twist. It was, yeah. It Again, it sort of reminded me of Michael Clayton, where in that movie, right, Tilda Swinton makes some decisions where you're like, you did not need to do that. That's yeah. insane. In my mind, it was like, why would this law firm do this yeah. when they would never have lost to him? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's just this odd component of the story. Honestly, you could cut her character entirely it would have made more sense if she didn't exist right it would have tightened the movie up i don't think we need this character for paul newman so that's the character stuff though that we're jumping back to and taking away from the legal proceedings that i just was like it's not really working yeah i also thought the judge was insanely insanely terrible (laughs) yeah he he should he should have requested a new judge actually yeah, the judge was crazy overtly biased against him or toward the church, hard to say. But yeah, he was wild, that guy. I did not expect him to punch Charlotte Rampley in the face when in he found public. out she was a spy. <laughs> in public. It's so funny. I was reading, this might have been on the Wikipedia page for the movie that Sidney Lumet, maybe it was Sidney Lumet, or the producers wanted to cut that out because they thought it was bad for Paul Newman's image and i just think that's mm-hmm. funny because we've now done two paul newman movies for the podcast and he's in both of them he slaps a woman <laughs> <laughs> so they forgot the hustler existed i think but or paul newman just hadn't slapped a woman for so long it you know it dropped yeah. out of the public imagination <laughs> but according to this podcast paul newman is a woman slapper yeah in every movie paul does. newman is in he slaps a woman i he's two for two at least on this podcast <laughs> uh yeah that was unexpected i don't know it just, it was not like particularly memorable to me. No, we're going to talk about some other things later, which maybe could have been nominated instead. And I think, well, obviously these are both our no's. So, but I think of the two no's, this is my more no This is a bigger no yeah. for me. Because at least Tootsie has like some cultural relevance. It's remembered. It's at trying to do something interesting. Yeah. How successful it is, is, you know, up for debate. But yeah, the verdict, this is a no for me. <laughs> It's a no for me. Sorry, Sydney. Oh, I I mentioned you too. This is one of two films Sydney Lumet directed Mm -hmm. in this year. The other one is Death Trap, which is a fun little like black comedy mystery movie that stars Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. And it's definitely not the greatest movie you've ever seen. But if you enjoyed Knives Out, you might like it. There's Knives Out, I think, directly references it in the way it like references Clue and other similar movies. And it's fun. So if you had to uh, to nominate a Sidney Lumet movie this year. Which we all know is a requirement. Yes, I would go with Death Trap over this one. Okay. I forget. Do we talk about Gandhi or do we save Gandhi for the end? I think we do Gandhi. All right. It is a, it is a double... Yes, we would have been mad about it. Yes, but more marginal. Yes. Before we get into it, it is a biopic. 
mm-hmm. is the life story of Mohandas Gandhi and from like the beginning of his career as a lawyer slash yeah. activist in South Africa to his eventual uniting of the people of India against British rule and winning home rule yeah. for India to his assassination over the conflict between Muslims and Hindus and the, the breakup of India into India and Pakistan. Yep. I think it's a pretty successful biopic. It's very long. Yeah. I had seen this movie before and I was dreading rewatching it. I had to watch this movie in college and I liked it more than I remembered having liked it. I think part of the issue in college is the way like movies worked there. We had to go to a cluster computer in a library to watch movies for class. Oh. So I was trapped. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get snacks. Not good to be trapped. You need snacks for a three yeah. plus hour long movie. Because you couldn't have snacks in the library. So, you know, it was just it was just tough. It was a yeah. tough viewing experience. But I, I thought it was more compelling. I thought in particular, like the first hour, hour 30 of this movie was pretty interesting as he's coming yeah. up and sort of developing his philosophy of, of nonviolence. Especially, I think, because that's the stuff that I knew the least about. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't really know anything about him having a South Africa chapter. Of right. His- life so that was fascinating yeah and then i thought the end where you start to get into the conflict post-independence between the hindus and the muslims was also very interesting it's just the middle portion starts to get a little repetitive but yeah there was definitely compelling stuff in this film yeah i mean i was left sort of thinking like i'm not sure how much more it does for me than like a great documentary would have done there is some good like emotional stuff. I thought his final fast at the end when like violence has broken out among Muslims and Hindus after they've won independence, but as they're still trying to figure out how they're going to govern themselves. And he does this final fast where he is not going to eat again until he's sure basically that the Muslims and Hindus are never going to fight again, which is basically his goal. Yeah. And his friend Nehru, who is now the leader of the country, is so torn up about it and he's doing everything he possibly can to try to convince Gandhi to eat again and he's bringing in every possible person to talk to him and like the head of the Muslims who told his followers to fight the Hindus he brings him in and that guy's like I've told everyone to stop fighting they're never gonna fight again and like he's bringing all these various people to Gandhi and seeing Nehru so emotionally affected I was I was was a little teary yeah in that scene i also was sad when gandhi's wife died she's there throughout the the length of the movie i also was a little sad when his priest friend he told him to go uh, okay i have thoughts about the priest friend okay he has this this priest friend that he meets in his south africa days who hears about his nonviolent campaign and comes from overseas to be like i want to work with you like i've heard your beliefs and i want to be a part of it and so then he's with him for years and years after that He goes with him back to India. He's there through all of his journeys around India to learn about the people. He's there for a bunch of his career. And then at a certain point, Gandhi decides this guy should leave because he wants himself and the people to believe that they can do this without white British people, basically. He Mm -hmm. wants everyone to believe that they can all do it themselves. And it's an emotional scene because this guy really loves him, but he also, like, gets it. And you're like, oh, I love this guy, but also I get it. Like, it's understandable. He's like the best ally. (laughs) He's so good. I love the guy. And then he leaves. And then like immediately Gandhi invites some white lady to join the crew. <laughs> yeah, that white lady. She's just what around. What the fuck was up with the white lady? <laughs> she's just around. I mean, I again, you know, it's a biopic. I assume that 
white lady was really with them. But I thought of, yeah. you know, you want to trim down this three hour, 11 minute movie, cut cut her. Especially since I just felt like it stepped on his whole point with the guy. And yeah. he has this emotional scene of like, you are my friend and I love you, but I need to do this on my own. And the guy's like, I understand. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I invited a white lady to come live with us and join our, our ashram. Yeah. Why? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's some sort of interpersonal relationship thing going on there that they just left out of the film that is the underlying thing. Yeah. Because there definitely is some sort of conflict between him and his wife running through it that never really gets touched on. And so you, f- I just feel like having that white lady there makes things I, I more cut, confusing I than it needs to be. Just get rid of it. I'm being honest. <laughs> no offense to that understand. actress. I would not have kept her yeah you know so i I was thinking about this movie in terms of other biopics that we've watched or that i've just seen in my life and i think what i like about this a little bit more is we do cut away from gandhi at times to follow the political drama right of what's happening in the country we cut away to the british and see what they're up to we cut away to the other indian leadership and what it made me think about is they're using Gandhi as a way to tell this overarching story of, of Indian independence. And I think I just much rather would have watched a movie that was about Indian independence where Gandhi is a character, like the, Nehru is a character. Yeah, but also you get more of all of the other guys. Yeah. yeah. And I think it would have made the ending, as much as I liked it, more effective because I feel like there must have been a through line of the tension between Muslims and Hindus running through the whole quest for independence. Mm-hmm. And it's not really focused on like sometimes the muslim leader will pop up and be like it's it'll never work and then he just sort of leaves and i'm sure what was going on with him was much more interesting yeah you're right following it all the way through would have been more interesting right and i and of course we know it's a film we know it's a biopic so i think they're also centering gandhi in places where he wasn't like the that that massacre where those indians were gathering to protest that was about the jailing of two other guys and there's a part where Gandhi goes to England right as they're gaining independence. The Muslim leader was there with him on that trip. So, right, oh, like... They even said in the movie that Gandhi was the only one from India, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yes. fucked up. So, I mean, this is the problem. And you know biopics aren't necessarily accurate. Movies aren't necessarily yeah. accurate. So you know they're making changes. And I think it hopefully encourages people to learn more about what happened in, in both South Africa and in India over these time periods. But... I just think the the political maneuvering of sort of everyone involved in Indian independence would have been more compelling. Whether or not you could fit that into even a three-hour movie, I don't know. It might have been even more difficult. So yeah, I thought Ben Kingsley's performance is very impressive. He's playing He's Gandhi great. from a young man to an old man. I'll also say I thought the makeup was great. The makeup's very His good. His aging is incredible yes. throughout the course of the movie. And I felt similarly about the actress who played his wife. She's also playing young woman to older woman, and yep. she does a, a fabulous job. Little baby Martin Sheen plays a journalist. He's pretty fun. And, yeah. and Candace Bergen is a photojournalist that comes to towards the end of Gandhi's life. This is a pro-journalism movie, which I also appreciate. It is a pro-journalism movie. <laughs> he says at one point you have to have a journal if you're going to bring people together and i was like yes the press yay the press (laughs) also there's just something amazing about the real life story of britain finally having to just be like all right we'll leave (laughs) yeah you're you're no longer governable we're clearly not wanted here and there's nothing we can do about it we've just got to go yeah like it's an amazing conclusion to a story well what i also think is valuable about it is it shows 
how long it really takes if you're going to use nonviolence and sort of economic warfare to have an impact. This is a 30 plus year long concerted effort Mm -hmm. to get the British to leave. And I think it's so important to know that if you want to affect change, it may take a a long, long time, (laughs) but you got to stick with it. Yeah. There were a couple of lines about nonviolence that I also really like from this movie. I appreciated when Gandhi said, the question is, do you fight to change things or do you fight to punish? I thought that was an Mm, an interesting idea. And there's also a part where Nehru is talking with the other leaders and he's saying terrorism would only justify the repression. And what kind of leaders would it throw up? Are they likely to be the men we'd want at the head of our country? Which I think is also interesting in light of missing, which we will talk about. Ooh, missing. I can't wait to talk about it. So yeah, I think there's definitely good stuff in here. I feel much more positively about it, maybe because I could have snacks as I was watching it. So it's good. It's ultimately good that you rewatched it. It was. You're not going around telling people what a piece of shit Gandhi is. (laughs) Yay, this podcast. But yeah, that's Gandhi. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was the best picture of the year, but I do think it was a solid biopic. And a very impressive initial performance by Sir Ben Kingsley. This is quite the year of debuts, I will say, because we've already mentioned Ben and Eddie Murphy in their film debuts, but there's another film debut coming up that we'll be talking about as well. But I also pointed out to you, which you missed, is that there is a young Daniel Day-Lewis in a very small role in this movie, which he had been in some film like as an unnamed character as a child, and then he was in some TV Mm -hmm. movies leading up to it, but this is his first feature film as an adult and it was such a small little moment that i didn't even notice it i love daniel day lewis how could i not notice it i know what daniel day lewis looks like as much as he's consistently under quite a bit of makeup and affect i'm like i know that guy look at him look at (laughs) his face i'd recognize you anywhere (laughs) so yeah another film debut three so far but let us talk about the films that we would not have been mad about winning best picture let's talk about et our first People may Spielberg. Have heard of it. <laughs> Our first Spielberg. Oh, we should mention that we have another thing we want to track through this podcast, which is if Maddie and I were the Academy, how many Oscars would Steven Spielberg have? So mm-hmm. keep note, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Start writing that down. So yeah, our first Spielberg, it's nice to fall into the warm embrace of a Steven Spielberg film. What I always find with especially the old classics of Steven's is when I rewatch them, I'm always struck by how they're like even better than you remember every time you watch them. I will say, so I didn't see E.T. as a kid. I saw it as an adult for the first time, probably like five or six years ago. And my experience with great Steven Spielberg movies that I just haven't gotten around to or got around to late is The experience I want to have with all older great movies where all you hear is like, oh, this movie's great. This movie's a classic. This movie is incredible. And, you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How good could it be? And then you watch and you go, oh, no, it's it is. It's maybe better than the I don't know how it could be better than the hype, but somehow experiencing it is better than the hype. How how you do that, Stephen? I think a lot of it is because he's such an emotional director. I feel like a lot of things that you watch that people have hyped up are technically great or there's some sort of amazing filmmaking quality to them that critics really like. And you watch and you're like, okay, there's craft. I get that there's craft, but you don't always love them. And I feel like Spielberg movies you always love because he 
leads with emotion. Mm -hmm. And so you connect to the characters. And that's really what you need to love a movie. You know, you need to love the characters. And I always love the characters. (laughs) Okay, but we should say what E.T. is about in case folks don't know. So E.T. is about this little alien, this friendly little alien who accidentally gets left behind. And then he stumbles upon this little boy and the two of them make an emotional connection to each other and become friends the boy brings him into the house and then the three children of this family are all sort of helping take care of the alien Mm -hmm. who is unfortunately as he gets more emotionally connected to the boy he also is getting sicker and in the background one of my favorite things about this movie is the way that Steven handles the I'll call them villains even though I really don't feel like this movie has any villains Mm -hmm. when it gets right down to it there's like this looming presence of people who are looking for E.T. And they're government people vaguely. You're thinking maybe they're law enforcement. You're thinking maybe they're some sort of Area 51 evil science researchers. (laughs) But there's a group of people looking for E.T. And the way that he handles them through most of the movie is you don't see any of their faces. There's a lot of silhouette. You're seeing this recurring image of these keys on a guy's belt. Yes. And it's very intimidating and frightening and you're worried about what's going to happen when these people finally find E.T. and it culminates in one of the scariest (laughs) scenes I've ever seen where all of a sudden they've been found and people in astronaut suits (laughs) arrive at the house and are coming in through the door and through the windows and it's just the most jarring thing you've ever seen because I think you expect to see people in hazmat suits or something like that and it's just amazing the dread that builds just before we get to the end of the movie i so like i said i watched this movie for the first time five or six years ago so this is only my second time watching this film and i did not realize that until the point that et presumably dies he's you know you mentioned he's getting sicker and sicker and then once the people arrive it seems like he passes away Mm -hmm. you do not see any adults faces except for their moms unobscured there's not a single adult who's not behind, like, once you get to that scene, they're behind, like, plexiglass masks or surgical masks. Not a mm-hmm. single other adult has a full unobscured face until after E.T. passes away. And I think that is fascinating. Wait, do we not see the teacher's face? No, you only see his waist as well. Fascinating. Yeah. And at first I thought it was just men, because it is for the most part men. But when you get to the scene where they're trying to revive E.T., there are women in the room, but it is a lot of men. And the other thing that's happening in this film is their father has left them. He's left the wife and he's in Mexico with Sally. Ugh, they're dead. (laughs) That's part of what is like... We should get to the end. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. So the plot-wise, yeah, they, they come in, all the scientists arrive. E.T. is on the verge of death, and he has become so connected to the boy that the boy is also on the verge of death. And this group of scientists and medical people are trying to revive both of them. It gets to a point where their connection breaks. The boy starts to get better. The alien presumably dies. And then they let the boy have his final moment with the alien. It turns out E.T. is still alive. He decides he needs to take E.T. and escape with him because the alien family is coming back to get him. So he and the brother steal E.T. The group of friends on their bikes (laughs) are all along with them. They get E.T. back to the ship. He has his emotional farewell with everyone from the family. He gets on board and he leaves. And that is the conclusion. So now we can finally dig into all the various moments. So you were talking about the family drama element of it. That's part of what is so successful about this movie 
So there's this through line, but it's underlying. It's not really plot. You just are learning through the dialogue that the, yeah, the father has left. The mother is emotionally fragile. It clearly has happened not that long ago. And the oldest son, who is a teenager, is aware of this and doing his best to um, support the mother in whatever possible way he can, but is also like 14 years old and does not know how to do that. (laughs) So there are all these great moments where the younger kids have their own dramas going on and are saying shit about the dad and the mom doesn't want to hear about the dad, but she can't really do anything about it. So then the older brother is like, shut up about dad. (laughs) (laughs) He's trying to support her and it's so sweet. I think one of my favorite things about the conclusion And what you think are going to be the bad guys arrive, and then it turns out they're really not bad. The lead scientist guy is just someone who – He's been sure there are aliens. He's a guy who believed in aliens his whole life, and all he's ever wanted is to find this alien. And so finding E.T. is the most amazing part of his life. Like, he can't believe it, and he's so happy that he has experienced this at all, that he's, like, so supportive of the relationship (laughs) between the kid and the alien. And – I just find there's so much compassion. Like, I love the mother's reaction to it all because she's the only one who hasn't known about the alien. All the kids have been hiding it from her. And so when it gets to the point where she finds out about this, there's never a moment for her that's like, get away from my son, you evil alien. No, there is. When she first comes into the bathroom, she's getting everyone away from him and they're trying to tell her he's not dangerous as he's dying. right. There is a moment. Yes. So, But I cried twice in this movie. That's the first scene where they're all in the bathroom together and yes. she forces them to abandon E.T. And obviously Which Elliot does not want to. Yeah. And that's right before all of the people break into the house. So it's all happening very quickly. Yeah. It's a really dramatic set of yeah. moments. But but what I mean is like then when E.T. is dying, everyone around is so compassionate for the kids' feelings about the alien that Mm -hmm. they're all just like really sad that he's sad even all the doctors are ready to just be like let's give him a moment yes (laughs) it's like so lovely how caring they all are this is the nicest the government has ever been in an alien movie Yeah. yeah it's how only steven spielberg would do it it fills me with warmth i really love this movie that's fair i think we also with this film have to talk about the iconic elements of it, right? We have an iconic John Williams score. It's wonderful, as they all are. As you would expect, we have a lot of iconic imagery in this movie. We have Mm -hmm. iconic lines, right? We have E.T. phone home. We have Mm -hmm. the finger that lights up as he's touching stuff. We have the scene where, like you said, all the boys on their bikes taking E.T. back up to where he's going to get picked up by his family and they all fly through the air. We've seen that everywhere, right? And the initial shot of of Elliot with the alien on his bike in front of the moon is is the logo for Amblin, Steven Spielberg's <laughs> right. company. So you will have seen that at the end of every Steven Spielberg movie. So obviously, this film had a cultural impact. Just a smidge. Yeah. We should talk about how amazing all of the kids are. Yes. They're so good. <laughs> like, every one of the child actors is so good. Yes. Steven Spielberg gets some performances out of these kids, which obviously the kids are talented to begin with, but to get this kind of performance out of a child actor... Also credit due to the director. Yeah, they're so wonderful. Every one of them is emotionally affecting. They're just so great. I I just feel like this also, it's like the performances are amazing, but the writing is so good. The sibling relationships feel so real. They interact the way that siblings interact, Mm -hmm. not like movie siblings interact. The other, this is more, I guess, a question I have, which I'm not 
saying you know the answer to, it's just I'm going to put it out there <laughs> sure. in the world, is Kramer versus Kramer was only a few years before this. So I, I'm curious how frequently divorce was depicted like this, like how often hmm. you would have a, a family where the father has just left and you have this single mother trying to to pull together these three kids who are, you know, left alone quite a lot, yeah. which is, you know, not non-normative and fine. But there is a scene where she has to go pick up Elliot from school and she leaves Drew Barrymore. She's like, will you be okay here alone in the house? I'm like, she's yeah, and she's like four. four. <laughs> <laughs> will she? There's no one to take care of her. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just curious how kind of new that was for film at this point in 1982. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously very personal for Stephen, because yeah. we we will talk about this later when we get to our themes. But the the origin of this film is ET is based on an imaginary friend Stephen had in the aftermath of his parents' divorce when he was a kid. Right. So I think there's a lot of that playing into it. But yeah, it just feels so real and human, and and it's magical. It's magical. I do have to say, I I saved this quote from Richard Attenborough, who directed Gandhi, who after. Gandhi won was very surprised and he said I was certain that not only would E.T. win but that it should win it was inventive powerful and wonderful I make more mundane movies <laughs> it's very sweet Richard super sweet just is very special E.T. and that's the reason that 40 years later it's still a huge part of our culture mm-hmm. so what a movie good stuff so okay Going into this episode, I already knew that I loved E.T. I already knew that it was my front runner, even not having seen the other things. But there is a dark horse that yeah. came from nowhere that I knew nothing about before we did this. And now I'm very excited to talk about. Right. You and I, way before this podcast, would get into these loops where we'd be scrolling through the Academy Awards and what was nominated. And this was a classic have you ever heard of, of missing? No. What, what could nope. that possibly be? Uh, <laughs> and it's a very interesting movie. So missing, as we said, does not take it is, place. It is, it is not a film set in 1973 in Chile, Mm-mm. right as the coup of Pinochet is occurring. Yes. Now I know what you're saying. They mentioned cities that are in Chile in this movie. Does, it's not that other country. <laughs> so John Shay and Sissy Spacek are a married couple who are living in not Chile, just because they've wanted to get away from America and and be somewhere else. And they've traveled extensively through South and Central yes. America and found a home in Chile because at not the Chile. time, not found a home in not Chile because at the time it had a very functional democratic government. It was a lovely place to live. Yes. <laughs> so. And so violence is starting to ramp up. They've had a a constitutional crisis of some kind, and this coup occurs. And Sissy Spacek has gone to visit friends, and she's left John Shea back in the city. He's just gotten back from a trip with their other friend to another part of the country. And when she comes back, he is gone. He is missing. Missing. (laughs) And so she is unable to find him. His father, who is quite a conservative older man, comes down and he has some, I don't know what he does for a living, but he seems, you know, it's sort like of well connected. He's like a man. Yeah. Yeah. Because he has spent the previous, like, it's been a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. I think, so, that he's been missing. And he spent that time in D.C. trying to get various politicians and, like, members of the State Department and stuff to 
intercede on his behalf with the people that are on the ground in Chile and he's not really in not Chile. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not really getting anywhere. So he decides to go there himself. Right. And then the, the movie really centers on the relationship between these two characters, Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. And it's so fascinating. Yeah. Because you have your Jack Lemmon character who is pretty conservative, definitely very traditional, a believer in America and capitalism and, you know, everything that she stands for and that sort of thing. And then his son and his son's wife are this younger generation. They're liberal and idealistic. They have what he thinks of as anti-capitalist ideas. Radical views. Radical views. He thinks of them as conspiracy theorists almost, like that think that the the government is out to get you and really right. the government is your friend. But also that they are unmotivated and just, yep. you know, moving around in South America, living this life, soaking up the resources of their parents. So they're these uh-huh. hippie, dippy, left wing kids who, you know, don't know the meaning of hard work and yeah. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. So that's where we begin their relationship. So he comes down to not chilly where Sissy Spacek has been also on her end trying to get answers from every government official that will speak to her and been getting the runaround the whole time. And so he walks into a situation where he's like, all right, I'm ready. Now that I'm here, we're going to get stuff done and they're going to cooperate with me and I'm going to get all these answers. And she's like, you're not going to get any answers because I've been asking for all of those answers and they are telling me nothing. And so... The two of them go on this quest where they're trying to get information from anyone they can talk to. Meanwhile, they're learning little bits from their friends because their friends had also been detained after the coup. What the like it all comes to be that the reason the son has had been detained is the trip that he was on with the family friend happened to be in the town that was the origin of the coup. Right. And he ran into all of these American military people while he was there who had been overly chatty. <laughs> That's true. They were pretty open about the fact that the U.S. was supporting the coup. <laughs> yeah. And then seemingly realized that he was not on their side like they expected and didn't do much to keep him from being arrested and tortured and murdered. Yes. Which, that is the end of the movie. They do finally find out that the son, like three days after he had been arrested, was killed they eventually come across, like, are able to find the body and mm-hmm. and go back home. Right. And, and, and it's very clear that the U.S. government was aware that that had happened all the way through. And they were giving yeah. him the runaround while he was down in not Chile. Exactly. And then the the dad on his way out is like, I'm so glad I still live in a country where we can, I can sue you guys and send you to jail. And you're like, there's no way any of these people are ever going to jail. And of course, you do get the scroll at the end with like, they promised to get them the body in three days and it ended up taking six months. And, you know, he sued all of these people and nobody ever got in any trouble. Yep. Now, um, one of the interesting things about this movie, and one of the reasons you and I might not have heard of it and someone else might not have heard of it, is it was unavailable from 1983 until 2006 because an ambassador sued them for libel and you could not get the movie until 2006, which yeah. is a shame. It is a crying shame. And so then it was very difficult for us to track it down because it's not like on a streaming service yes. <laughs> anywhere since no one even remembers that it exists. It was wiped off the map for 30 years. But 
It's really good. Very good. It's very interesting. I think one of the things that's most interesting about the film, right, is we've talked about, again, with Judgment at Nuremberg, right? We don't make films about the aftermath of World War II. We don't make films about Reconstruction. Oh, we need films about I Reconstruction, know. for God's sake. <laughs> okay. We have not made a ton of films about the U.S.'s constant meddling in South and Central America. So to have that be the subject of this film is just baseline more interesting than, you know, the million films we've made about World War II or Vietnam at this point, because it's just Mm -hmm. not something that we talk about. You're right. Baseline, that's fascinating because we just don't make movies about it. But I also, I mean, I assume these people are at least mostly based on the real people. Mm -hmm. But from a storytelling perspective, these two as the main characters is so effective. (laughs) Like, it's just fantastic to have the dad who represents all of these like American beliefs having to come into this system and be confronted with the hypocrisy of it all. And then playing that out through the relationship between the father and the daughter-in-law is just like so fascinating. And I think it also just works. They do a good job at an interpersonal level where they are constantly butting heads, but then coming back together, I think because they both realize both of them is mourning and having a difficult time and they both do truly love the John Shea character. And also as they're bonding, the father is sort of learning things about his son that he didn't know because they they had a contentious relationship as well. So he's coming to understand why Sissy Spacek loves him so much and how, you know, good of a person he was. And how he's not like so dissimilar from him. I Mm -hmm. think he always could only see in him the stuff that he did not like. And then he learned stuff about him and is like, oh, he's actually very driven and he's successful and he's writing these great things. And just because we have had these disagreements doesn't mean that he's some worthless layabout or whatever. Like, it's just. So you have a very successful interpersonal drama that's happening within the context of a really successful political you know yeah and there's just there's some incredibly striking imagery in this film the the thing that i think oh like the God, image yeah. that's most burned in my head is they eventually get to this this point where they've gotten the addresses of hospitals where there are either people who have been who are alive and unidentified and who are dead and haven't been identified yet and so they go to this i don't know what the building is this place where they have just bodies and bodies and bodies just rooms full of bodies yes and so sissy spacek and jack lemon are walking through those rooms and they're trying to identify see if they can find her husband and they're 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 yeah they're walking through room after connected room just full of these bodies and they're sort of separated in one room and sissy spacek has a reaction and it turns out it's the other friend who went missing that the government told them specifically had returned to america yes Yeah. And then it turns out he, of course, was never released and was actually murdered. Yes. And then they look up because there's a staircase coming out of this room. Yes. And there's a plexiglass ceiling or floor above them. And you can just see the silhouettes of more and more bodies. And it's Mm -hmm. it is a very powerful image. That's going to stay with me in a a very. There were a lot of really striking moments. And there's just something to. The beginning of it is fascinating to me because they're just these normal people that are living their normal life. And I thought that it was going to be about like he was a political journalist or something. Mm-hmm. But no, he's a little bit involved in what's kind of a political paper. But really, he's just a writer. He's writing yeah. like children's stories <laughs> in his free time. Yes, he's working on a screenplay about a magical duck. Right. 
And so they're just people that live in this town and they live in what looks like a pretty lovely suburban sort of landscape. And the way that things so quickly have fallen apart, it's all of these people walking around the town and it's like they're trying to do their normal business and there are all of these people with guns and there are tanks and they're being confronted by this senseless violence right there in front of them and it just has happened all of a sudden. And it was like a week ago, it was a totally normal place to live. And now all of a sudden... They're waiting in line for the bus and these women get pulled out of line from the bus by soldiers because they're not wearing skirts. Yeah. And they like are telling them women wear skirts here now. You're right. And like as the, the bus drives you, away, the soldiers are also cutting their pants. Yeah. Yeah. And just they'll be pulled away by a soldier to get interrogated over something or other. And then there's just like a dead body in the corner of the room. And just the how crazy this is for these people that it was normal days ago and now it's this and it's like that this can happen overnight is shocking yeah and what's good that what i also appreciate about the movie is they keep that up for the movie so jack lemon comes down and he gets into to town and there's gunshots happening he's like oh i thought the coup was over and the attache is like yeah stuff is still happening and throughout the movie you will just hear gunshots out of sound and it's very jarring for you the viewer as well but i think it also helps you feel on edge which you would if you were well, there. And, and it's interesting because I don't feel like people would feel like this today after the 40 years, well, the 50 years we've lived in since 1973. But they very much have this idea that nothing is going to happen to them because they're American. Yes. I also thought that was interesting. And not just Jack Lemon, but John Shea and their friends are like, we're American. What's what? What? You know, we'll be fine. Yeah. Like they can't do anything to us. We're American. And mm-hmm. it's like, boy, were they wrong about that? But yeah, it's super effective storytelling. It's very, very well done. And such a fascinating topic that it's underexplored and also just a really well written and acted character piece. I loved it. Me too. I missing. The f- you can't get this or judgment at Nuremberg. Yeah. How come all the important political movies are unstreamable? What about that? The man, whoever's making this happen. Come on. That sucks. What a movie. This is another one where I'm like, people should be watching this in school. This and Judgment at Nuremberg. I mean, Um, not only do we not make movies about it, but this is not covered in a normal history curriculum. Yeah, this is a part of American history that you really have to be looking for to learn about. Mm -hmm. It's not something that everyone is talking about. Which I also think helps the movie because you can understand why Jack Lemmon's character would disbelieve American involvement in the coup. Yeah. Until actually confronted with it with his own eyes. Yes. Man, oh, man. Yeah. But it's also interesting too, right? Like the critique of this is, so the government that's overthrown by the coup was a democratically elected government, but the president was a Marxist. And so mm-hmm. what comes out of this movie is the idea from the government's perspective that it is more American to be a capitalist than it is to have an elected a democracy, <laughs> a representative yeah. form of government. And I think and ain't that the truth? I think, you know, you got to think about that, America. You got to think about what you think is what America is. 
What do you think? That, America you're right. Is, that that America? moment is so great. I love that they really put a fine point on it in that yes. scene where the guy is like, sure, whatever, your son died, but we did this for you. Are you an American? Right. <laughs> like, do you not? And earlier in the film, he had said almost the exact same thing to Sissy Spacek. He's like, you know, we're protecting the way of life that you all know and care about, uh, you know. The, the dad had yeah. said this to Sissy yeah. Spacek. Yeah. And then he gets the same speech from Back the diplomat. We have 1,300 like, companies doing business here. Don't you care right. about that? Yeah. Are you not willing to sacrifice your son to protect capitalism in yes. not Chile? Yeah. It's wild. And is it definitely exactly the viewpoint of the U.S. government and why we did this in not just Chile, but places all over the fucking world? Yep. We love to prop up dictatorships to support capitalism. So yeah, what a movie. It's good. It's such a bummer. It has kind of the same ending of Judgment at Nuremberg where like your character has learned something or whatever and had this moment of being like, justice will be served. And then you're like, nope. No, <laughs> you didn't win your, you're suing those guys. And most of those Nazis They're... were released a couple years later. Yep. Poof. <laughs> <laughs> what a world. Anyway, more movies like this. I'm excited to see some more Costa Gavras stuff. Me too. Coming up whenever we get to that. Yeah. Again, I find myself grateful for this podcast because I never would have watched that movie in my life. We would have spent the rest of our lives occasionally looking at who won Best Picture this year and being like, what is missing? Exactly. What even is that? <laughs> it's wonderful. If you can find it, go watch it. Yeah. It's probably available on DVD in your library or something. I don't know. <laughs> So yeah, those are our five films, but now we find ourselves at the should something else have been nominated category. Ah. Ah. <laughs> so we already ran through the box office, but do we mm -hmm. find anything up in the box office list that feels neglected? I don't think there was anything rejected. else in the box office list, but I, yeah. did, I did check out AFI, the top 100, mm -hmm. and there are four films from 1982 in the AFI top 100, E.T. and Tootsie, which of course mm -hmm. we've talked about, but also Sophie's Choice and Blade Runner. We watched Sophie's Choice. I think we should talk about that first. Sophie's Choice. What a movie. Unexpected. It was... <laughs> Not at all what I thought it would be. I told you this before. If you had asked me what Sophie's Choice was, I would have been able to tell you, I guess I'll call it three things about it. Meryl Streep mm -hmm. is in it. It's one of her most famous performances. Nazis are involved somehow. Yeah. And Sophie's Choice is that she has to choose between her children. I could have told you less about this movie. <laughs> I could have told you that Meryl Streep is in it and that yep. Sophie at one point has to make a difficult choice. <laughs> Yeah. Because <laughs> we've all, I mean, Sophie's Choice has entered into the That's lexicon. That's a real Sophie's Choice. But yeah. I don't know that I knew the full context of it. I was just like, it's a it's a tough one. But but that's not what it is about. <laughs> so, so that's what we're coming into it with. And then the movie starts with a voiceover that goes, call me Stingo. I was a young Southern man who came up to what my dad called the Sodom of the North, Brooklyn, to write a story. And I'm like, what is this? Why, it's Peter McNichol doing a Southern accent, of okay. course. I mean, I love Peter McNichol. Peter McNichol, great. Did not know he was in this movie. Nope. Also in this movie, did not know about it. 
Kevin Klein. Did yes. anybody know that Kevin Klein was in Sophie's Choice? I didn't. Also, his debut. Very good. Yes, debut this is film Kevin debut Klein. number four of this episode. Not the first thing he ever did. Kevin Klein was a theater actor for years before he did this, but mm-hmm. making his film debut. So this movie, if I were to sum it up, is about a polyamorous thruple, basically, that is Meryl Streep and Southern Peter McNichol and schizophrenic Kevin Klein in post-World War II Brooklyn. And then there are little bits of Nazi flashback as a part of it. So you are cutting back and forth between the present, which is the development of the relationship between these three characters. Sophie and Kevin Klein's character, Nathan, are in a tumultuous relationship. They clearly are passionately in love, but they also have these big blowout fights. Nathan is prone to fits of of jealousy. We don't know he's schizophrenic. Yeah. At the beginning, you think he's just like an alcoholic, jealous, abusive guy. guy. And he had sort of found Sophie after she came to the States and she was very malnourished and he sort of nursed her back to health. So that's also the backstory of the relationship. He figured it out that she was anemic. Yes. He is brilliant. Oh, yeah. The reason we know he's schizophrenic is his brother pulls aside Peter McNichol to fill him in on the history of of Kevin Klein because he is a mystery. And he apparently his life story is like he's brilliant. And he was that sort of promising golden child that everyone knew was going to be so successful. And then when he was 10, got diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and so has never been able to go on to fulfill his promise. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's brilliant. And he's captivating and he's like vibrant and you're trying to be like sophie like it's not worth it or whatever but like it's it's more than just he has wild mood swings (laughs) well i think what i liked about this movie in terms of an abusive relationship that you can understand is you understand why they bonded right so a he took care of her but also they bonded over poetry they could recite poetry like their their interests are the same she also comes from a very well educated background but also because of the level of trauma she's experienced she clings to him right he is a life raft to her as well and so like as much as you watch any abusive relationship and you're like you just got to get out of there like it does make a certain amount of you know internal sense unfortunately right and and in regards to him being magnetic that is where Peter McNichol comes into it. So Peter McNichol wants to be a writer and he comes to New York to get some life experience, basically. And he gets swept up into their orbit. They have this whirlwind, beautiful lifestyle when he's not in one of his fits. And so there are multiple montages in this movie of the three of them on dates together. Yes. (laughs) And, And like... They're all, it is clear to me that they are all falling in love. And there's this running bit of what Sophie's life was like during the war, because they all know that she was in a concentration camp. Peter McNichol's trying to figure out her story. Mm -hmm. And as she tells it to start, her dad was this liberal professor, and he ended up getting swept up when the Nazis came into Poland in a mass assassination of all the the professors in the town. And then there are multiple beats through the movie where you learn more about what actually happened. She tells some more of her story that is slightly more accurate, but not completely accurate. (laughs) And then by the end, you finally find out what the titular Sophie's choice was. Meanwhile, what's been going on with the three of them is in, in present day is yeah, they're having their romance. Mm -hmm. He, there's even a scene where he talks about like you could you'd have to forgive me for having a crush on him. He's just so magnetic like him talking about Kevin Klein. But it eventually gets to a point where 
he has like a, a paranoid incident severe enough that he gets a gun and he takes Sophie and Sophie has to escape him. And it seems like he was going to kill her. And then he calls Peter McNichol and Sophie to say, like, I'm coming to you. Like he fires the gun on the phone and says that he's coming for them. And mm-hmm. the two of them flee the town. And Peter McNichol intends to take Sophie to his family farm so that they can Mm -hmm. be together. After she's told him the real truth, the two of them sleep together. And then in the morning, she has left and left him a note saying that he needs to move on and find someone else. And and she has gone back to Kevin Klein's character. Peter McNichol goes back to Brooklyn. And it turns out that Kevin Klein has come across some cyanide poison. Yeah, cyanide. And the two of them have taken cyanide and died in each other's arms and he goes up and sees them on the bed and they're there like huddled on the bed that i mean it's it's sad <laughs> you don't feel uh, great but you also feel like things were so hard for both of them but it was just like a shock to me that this would this was what this movie was about yeah like i said the movie started and i was like what who's yes. stingo yes <laughs> so do i mean What are your, like, sort of overall thoughts of this film? Do you think it should be nominated? Do you think it should be on the AFI Top 100 list? I found the stitching together of the two pieces not 100% successful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's interesting to get Sophie's backstory, but I I don't know that it makes the melodrama of their relationship more successful. And I'm also, I don't know what my global takeaway from this movie is. Yeah, I'll say, I mean, Meryl Streep is obviously great. Everyone talks it's about how great, great she performance. is. It's a great performance. But Kevin Klein is fantastic. Yeah, he should have been nominated and maybe yes. won. He's so good. Uh, it would depend if he was nominated in leader. I feel like he would have been in supporting actor, or at least you could have made the argument to put him into supporting actor. And yeah. I think he had a fighting chance. Yeah, he was so good. I mean, I, it's another one of those situations where it's his film debut. No one in Hollywood knows who he is. Of course, they're not going to nominate it's him. It's a Ray Fine situation. It's a Ray Fine situation, which we will get back to when we do Schindler's List year. But yeah, he's phenomenal. He's every bit as good as Meryl Streep. I'm like feel bad that everybody left this movie just thinking like Meryl Streep is amazing. And well, we don't even know Kevin that Klein. Kevin Klein was in. We didn't know movie. he was in it. <laughs> but yeah, he's phenomenal. Peter McNichol with his southern accent is hilarious. The the Nazi stuff is like affecting in the way that Nazi stuff always is. But yeah, I don't feel like it's six, super successfully woven into the narrative of the movie. And I also feel like then because you have this just half hour chunk of Nazi story, it sort of feels like, you know, it's very like Oscar Beatty, the way mm-hmm. that the movie is. I, I have mixed feelings about it just because it was so not what I thought it was. I don't think I would put it in my top 100 films of all time. I'll say that. Whether or not it should have been nominated this year, it could. I mean, we had three movies that we didn't think should have won. Like there's potentially room for stuff, but I, I don't think yeah. I would say that it should have won. <laughs> Right. I still think Gandhi should have been nominated for yes. sure. So really, like, it's a question of Tootsie and the verdict. And we'll get to the other things we're going to talk about that could have also been nominated. Yeah, I just I just don't know that it's, again, like, the, the, the thruple component of it is like, all right. I mean, I was I was fascinated. Sure. I was, like, here for the story. It was not what I thought it would be. Right. But, yeah, I, don't yeah, I guess the question is, like, if you take out the the Nazi chunks of it, right? Like we don't get as much of, of Meryl Streep's backstory. This is a more sort of normal movie that is just this 
difficult interpersonal relationship. And then I, I guess I just think it's sort of a, a melodrama that's not necessarily my cup of tea for a film of like, you know, for a best pe- picture nominee. These people have a tumultuous relationship that ends in, I don't know if it's a double suicide or a murder suicide. That's a little unclear, but oh no. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I've seen it now. Yeah, because I'm going to be talking anytime anyone brings up Sophie's Choice. I'm going to be like, do you know what happens in that movie? Because <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. But yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm kind of ambivalent about if it should have been nominated. I mean, also just the scene where Peter McNichol meets that girl who used to be frigid and then they almost have sex. And it's like, do you need this in the movie? I don't know. Yeah, that was wild, too. Um, there was so much that happened where you're just like, wow. like what okay i don't know but i guess part of what's crazy about it is that it is a move like he is the protagonist of the film yes peter mcnichol that's part of the main shock of it i think Mm -hmm. is you're like i thought this was a movie about sophie (laughs) yeah her choice that's the style of the film it's her choice the movie was called call me stingo (laughs) i mean what a different world we would live in today all right. I don't really have anything else to say about Sophie Stray. Shall we move on to the other AFI top 100 and by extension, yes. a broader conversation? I think this this year is a great opportunity to talk about genre filmmaking. And we can start by talking about Blade Runner, which is the other film in the AFI top 100 for this mm-hmm. year. So you and I have both seen Blade Runner. Yep. Like 10 plus years ago, but you were able to find the theatrical cut and rewatch it. And I didn't think it was fair to watch a different cut of the movie and have a conversation about its nomination. Yeah, I'm glad that I rewatched it because I had not seen it in long enough that I couldn't remember much of it. I'm not that big of a fan, but I do think it is an important film worth talking about. Yes. And so my story with it is I watched this in college as well. So I think like 2008 and I watched it directly after reading Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And similar to our Wuthering Heights discussion, I was definitely approaching the film from the perspective of having just read the book and the film does not focus on the things in the book that I found the most compelling. And so I was maybe more critical of the film than I would have been had I watched it blank. But I think, right, the the pro column for this film is, you know, depending on how you, the listener, feel about the story, largely technical. The visuals of this mm-hmm. film are amazing and iconic. But what else did you think about the movie rewatching it? It's a technical achievement. It's beautiful to look at. It's a cultural achievement because I think it is undeniable that most sci-fi that has been produced after this movie is affected by it in some way that it's hard to deny its impact i'll say for me it doesn't work on a character and plot level but i think part of that is not that i'm averse to sci-fi but a, a story that relies mostly on world building is not usually for me mm-hmm. so i think it's fine i don't love it i i don't really get the hype i'll say other than in terms of the way that people have based cyber dystopia worlds on this as we have gone on so yeah i mean i think it's fine i know that people will say if you'd watched the final cut you would think it was a masterpiece (laughs) but which is potentially true but not what we're judging anyway because we're talking about the films of what people would have seen in making a decision about the academy awards this year But yeah, so this was sort of an interesting year for science fiction filmmaking across the board. Obviously, we think E.T. 
easily mm. could have won Best Picture. That's a sci-fi mm-hmm. movie. There's a cute little alien. I also watched John Carpenter's The Thing, which came out this year. I enjoy John Carpenter generally. I don't know if you're generally a fan of his. I'm works. not super well acquainted with John Carpenter stuff. So I think this is the fifth of his films I've seen. This isn't, I'm not anywhere close to being a completionist. So The Thing takes place at an Antarctic research base. You have a group of people who are working there. They're isolated. The radio hasn't been working for a couple of weeks when this film takes place. And it starts off with a couple of guys in a helicopter who are shooting at a dog that's running across the snow. And so you're like, what's happening here? And so they're chasing this dog and they arrive at the American base and they're two Norwegians. And so they also can't communicate with these Norwegian guys. They end up like blowing themselves up. And then anyway, the dog is able to escape them and they take the Mm. dog in and the two Norwegians are dead. Kurt Russell, who is one of the main characters, and a couple of the other guys end up going to the Norwegian base to try to figure out what happened, and it's completely destroyed. There are dead guys everywhere. They find axes in the door. There's blood everywhere. And they kind of surmise that the Norwegians found something and dug something up. Turns out the dog is the thing. It is an alien that crash landed on Earth 100,000 years ago and got frozen in the ice. And the thing is capable of taking on the appearance, becoming a a complete replica of any living thing. So a dog, a human, whatever it is. And throughout the course of the movie, they have to try to figure out who the thing is and whether or not they're going to be able to get out. And does it make more sense for them to just try to kill all themselves so the thing isn't able to get out into a larger society? Because Wilford Brimley figures out that if the thing is able to get out of Antarctica, it will absorb every living thing on the planet in like a year. <laughs> Everything will be the How will killing themselves help? Because won't people come to Antarctica to find out what happened to them? So you can kill it by setting it on fire. So they've been setting Mm -hmm. things on fire. Oh, so they could set it and themselves on fire and all. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it'll all burn up. So, you know, it's it's a really tight little movie. There's tons of paranoia running through it because you don't know who's the thing. And at the end of the movie, it's ambiguous. The only people left alive are Kurt Russell and Keith David. It's got a great cast, a great set of little interlocking characters. And sort of similarly to something like Blade Runner or even E.T., right? The visual effects are amazing. They're mostly practical, obviously. And they are, to this day, in my opinion, still extremely effective. Mm -hmm. Like you're watching it and you're like, this is terrifying. This is gross. I enjoyed it very much. But, you know, my instinct watching it was like, well, but this isn't like best picture material, but you know what? Why is not? Because you've been infected by the Academy's views on genre filmmaking. It absolutely is. I think it is expertly structured. I think it is expertly paced. It's well made. The visual effects are there. I think it all still really works. And so, like, let's give it the verdict why not? spot. <laughs> why can't we nominate Blade Runner and the Thing? Come on. I don't know. Why not? Indeed. I mean, at the time, it was it was not successful at the box office and it was critically panned I think because people had such a visceral reaction of like this is so gross Mm. (laughs) there's some body horror in it but it's good it's good stuff all right way to go John Carpenter's the thing yes also coming out this year is another favorite film of mine Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan Mm -hmm. in the good column of this film it has iconic moments it has Kirk yelling Khan we've all Mm -hmm. seen it oh yeah I think it is doing interesting things thematically around questions of what is your role in society as you age. A lot of the Star Trek films focus on the fact that the characters are are aging. 
So the premise of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is there's an episode in the original series where they've come across this ship called the Botany Bay that contains these men and women who've been asleep for over 100 years. And what ends up coming to light is that the leader of the ship is Khan. He is genetically engineered to be a, an ubermensch, a superman, and he had conquered a large portion of Asia before he escaped from Earth. And what they end up doing with him, instead of imprisoning him or killing him, because he tries to take over the ship, of course, is they leave him and his followers on a planet. And so fast forward to the future, and something had happened. The planet got knocked off its orbit. Basically, all of Khan's people, except for half a dozen died, including his wife. So now he is out for revenge against Kirk for abandoning him on this planet and leaving them all to die. So it's this tale of vengeance. And so like, does the film work better if you're a fan of Star Trek? Definitely, right? You know the characters. But I think Spock's death scene still works and is poignant. I think all the thematic stuff works, even if you're not familiar. I think it's honestly pretty sophisticated. I think you could make an argument for Best Picture nominee, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, even if you're not a huge original series fan. I love it. That's what this podcast is all about, arguing for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan as a mm-hmm. Best Picture nominee. I'm here for it. Another genre film worth mentioning, though I don't know that either of us will argue that it should be a Best Picture nominee, is Tron, as we already talked about with its CGI, very influential, especially, again, on a technical level. But there was a lot of interesting genre filmmaking happening this year. Yeah. And as usual, not a lot of recognition from the Academy. Now we got to put in the verdict. E.T. only gets in there because the genre stuff is snuck in. (laughs) Well, it takes place on Earth. That helps. All right. All right. I mean, that feels like plenty, right? There can't be anything else to talk about that needs to be nominated. (laughs) Not to my knowledge from 1982. Oh, we didn't watch Victor Victoria. That's supposed to be very Oh, that's true. Although that's interesting because there's a lot of like gender bending stuff going on this year. Victor Victoria was nominated for several other things. Yeah. We didn't watch it though. We didn't watch Das Boot. That's one Mm -hmm. I've heard about. Also nominated for things. So you can't watch them all is the thing. Let us know if you think Victor Victoria or Das Boot should have won and that, you know, we should revisit. Because we'll do it. Uh Uh-huh. Just you wait. But I guess we're at a place now where we can say what should have won. I mean, we talked before about things getting an Oscars boost. Like, is there benefit to a less remembered film being the best picture winner? I had that thought too. Like, if Missing had won, would people know what it is now? Is a a question I asked. And might that be good? Potentially. But it's hard to argue with E.T. I mean, it's firing on all cylinders. On all cylinders. <laughs> and it's just, it's incredibly emotionally affecting. Like I said, I cried twice when I watch E.T. Oh, yeah. Many tears. It's hard. It's hard to not give it to E.T. But Missing is very good and compelling. Yes. I will say that. I can't argue against E.T. I think it is a, basically a perfect film. And retains so much cultural relevance it's wonderful it deserved to be recognized steven spielberg deserved to be recognized but please if you take any lesson from this because i'm sure you've already seen et watch missing (laughs) because i promise you have not watched missing and you should so did the oscars get it wrong yes yeah unfortunately though we love ben kingsley yeah gandhi's not the nightmare i remember it being (laughs) And what more could you say about something than that? I do think we have to take a moment to visit Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. He was, again, two years old this year. So we're going to do the, what of these roles should he have played if he could time travel? I have a couple of thoughts about this. 
Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to remake Tootsie with a more modern gender conversation. Because I think what is also missing from Tootsie is the conversation about Tootsie today would be about a man taking a woman's role in a in a picture. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting story to tell there. And we have not seen Jake do drag before, I don't think. And I would like to. Yeah. I thought of that as well. I also had the thought, is that movie makeable today? But I think you would have to change sort of what it's about. Yeah. So it would be a different movie. I know they made it into a stage musical that was not as well received. I think they didn't change enough about it. Yes. (laughs) And people were left with like, oh, I don't think this works today. So yeah, I'm intrigued by the concept of can we make a Tootsie for today? Great question. And obviously he could do it. Would he be too pretty? Yeah, maybe maybe he needs to be a not attractive woman. That is part of the plot that he's a not attractive woman. I don't know. I haven't seen him in drag, so I don't know. But yeah, that's a good choice. I mean, I would never replace him because he's so good, but it would have been interesting to see him in Kevin Klein's Sophie's Choice role. Mm -hmm. I think I just want to see Jake in drag is is really what's happening in my brain. The nation is calling out for Jake in drag. Let's make that happen. Okay, so in conclusion, let's do our little wrap up. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these films? I mean, it's very possible I could watch E.T. again. I feel like... We got a lot of years left to live. If I have, if I don't ever watch E.T. again, I'll be surprised. I will probably be watch, re-watching Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan again. I'll probably watch John Carpenter's The Thing again. I wouldn't mind re-watching Missing. I wouldn't mind re-watching Missing either, and I would love to show it to people. Yes. I, f- I feel like I should watch The Thing for the first time, I'll yeah. say. But like yeah. Tootsie, The Verdict, and Gandhi. I'm probably not going to watch Gandhi again. Twice was enough for you? I mean, again. More compelling than I thought, but it is a commitment. Yes. Have we learned anything on our quest to figure out what a best picture is? I have a question of, is it appropriate to nominate a film based on technical achievement alone? And, you know, that's a different conversation from, do I think a film should win based on technical achievement alone? And I think this is going to come up, again, spoiler alert for some episode in the future in our Titanic discussion. Oh my god, yeah, that's going to be a big part of the Titanic discussion. And then I guess the Avatar discussion. Indeed. Tangentially. Yeah, I think my initial instinct on that question is a movie can be nominated for technical achievement and likely should not win for technical achievement alone Mm -hmm. is my initial instinct. But again, we have... 85 more years or something (laughs) to do. So maybe my opinion will change. And that said, I mean, given its cultural impact, I feel like the Academy might have missed the chance to nominate Blade Runner, Mm -hmm. even though I don't think it should have won. Definitely not. I'll say, I don't know if I'm learning about what I think should make a best picture, but I am learning about what the Academy thinks makes a best picture. And I feel like Gandhi is right down the middle Academy Best Picture material. (laughs) I'm not at all surprised that that won. And then I find myself like, what is it about E.T. that did not win them over? Because it's just such a perfect film. Is it that it's about kids? Is it that it has an alien? This is the Wizard of Oz conversation. Is it? It is. is It's the Wizard of Oz conversation. Or at least a family film. Yes, a family film. They're both you know, beautiful and magical and whimsical and touching. Do people think that a Best Picture nominee is something that children should not watch? (laughs) Something that children should not get through. I mean, if a child likes it, how good could it be? They have terrible taste, notoriously. I mean, we know we're going to also be looking, like, 
we learned, right, 1989 is the last year a PG movie win. So we have plenty of opportunity to track quality family films and them also not getting attention at the Oscars. Oh, we'll be tracking them with with our continual love of Disney, but also the rise of Pixar in recent years. We'll be talking about some, some yes. family films. Okay, let's let's revisit our patterns. Angry white guys had kind of a weak year. I don't know. I feel like the character in Tootsie is a, is a toxic. I think, yeah, really what we're doing is refining our angry white guys conversation to be a toxic masculinity in all forms conversation. And in that case, 1000% yeah. Tootsie. Kevin Klein is pretty angry, but he's got. But it's because he's schizophrenic. It's I not know, like I'm not really. I'm not really. He needs help, and it's 1947. And there's not like medication for him. Yeah, the treatment. I, I was amazed that he got a diagnosis, right? Let alone that there's no. Especially treatment. when he was 10, that would have been in the 20s. Yeah, in the yeah. 20s, he got diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Amazing. Biopics having another strong year, as they always do. And then again, original ideas, our favorite thing. And we already mentioned it, but E.T., an original idea from the mind of child Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Good job, Steven. Fantastic. Happy to have something original. Not that, you know, adaptations can't be good, but that's 1982. What more could we possibly say? Great year for science fiction. It's a good year for science fiction, exactly. So what are we talking about next time? Next time we are doing the 48th Academy Awards or the films of 1975. So we're not too far. We've, the we've actually been eighties. We've actually been yeah. again. The randomness is interesting because we've done seventy five, seventy six, eighty, eighty two. I guess there'll be another point, you know, in the future when we're doing like 2014, 2012, 2008. Yes. We'll find out. <laughs> that is the joy of randomness. Sometimes things clump together. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the nominees that year were Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws. Nashville and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's right, we get another Spielberg. And just so people can add to their tally count, we've given him one or two Academy Awards this year. Do we mm. think he should have won Best Director? Who did win? Was it Attenborough? Yeah, it was Attenborough. I mean, the imagery is so iconic. I mean, Attenborough had to manage a lot of stuff. the The number of extras in that movie is is extensive. It's like a lot of people, and it's a long movie, but. Iconic imagery, though. Come on, it's ET. I'm giving him two. My tally right. is two for Steve. I'm with you. I'm I'm fine. I'm <laughs> fine with it. And you know what? I think Richard Attenborough is fine with it too. That's true. As long as Attenborough is at peace, then we all are. So, how many of these 75 movies have you seen before? I have seen two of them. As have I. I think mm. the same two: Jaws and I One Flew Over so the Cuckoo's well. Nest. Yep. Excited to watch Dog Day Afternoon. Excited to watch Nashville. Heard mm-hmm. interesting things about Nashville. Less excited at present about Barry Lyndon, but maybe it'll surprise me. We continue to find out that things we didn't expect a lot from are spectacular. Maybe it's the missing of 1975. Or the judgment at Nuremberg, because it's also pretty long. (laughs) (laughs) All right. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, concerns, or if you would like to answer any of the many questions we threw at you over the course of this podcast, you can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com and on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 